having people look at a beautiful piece of fashion, even, you know, purchasing a T-shirt can help them to understand where does that come from? What does that represent? What story are, you know, we telling you who created it? So I think it's also a really nice and gentle and fun way to learn about Indigenous peoples and culture and history. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Yatu Widders Hunt, a writer and communications consultant who grew up in the suburbs of Sydney and is a descendant of the Anawan and Dungadi peoples from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Instagram fans may know her best as the founder and curator of Australian Indigenous Fashion, which she launched as a passion project in 2017 to showcase the incredible work of our Indigenous designers. But Yatu actually began her career as a communications advisor in federal politics, and she also spent a few years as a freelancer, working with the likes of NITV and the Koori Mail, before taking on her current role as a director at Cox in All Ridgeway an Indigenous consultancy specialising in communications, policy and research. I was intrigued to find out how someone who started out in the government sector has gone on to become an Indigenous fashion advocate through the success of her side gig and how she's using her platform to spark important conversations and connection with Indigenous identity, culture and stories. Here's my chat with Yatu Widders-Hunt. So, Yatu, you were drawn to a career in communications from pretty early on, and you're a self-described political nerd. So can you tell us a bit about your background and where those interests came from? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in a really political household. My um, my father um, is an Aboriginal man. He was involved in the land rights movement, and he was part of the first Aboriginal arts board in Australia. So I grew up with a really strong sense of social justice and went to rallies a lot as a child. Um, right. And I guess the um, the part of that experience that really captured me was the communications. So how do you get messages through to people or how do you effect change by crafting arguments or ideas and bringing them together? And that's really what kind of fascinated and inspired me to move into a communications career. You mentioned social justice issues. What kind of conversations were you having around the dinner table when you were growing up? Um, we were talking a lot about land rights. Um, I think I went to some anti-nuclear rallies at one point as a young person. My parents are very passionate about refugee advocacy as well. Um, and we were really lucky. Um, my father was an academic and we were really lucky to actually live in China and Japan as young children and meet with other minority and Indigenous peoples there. So we were exposed to lots of issues that are very um, at a very young age and yeah my, my brother and I were actually inspired to protest at home at times when we wanted McDonald's or something like that so um, <laughs> <laughs> we certainly picked it up. <laughs> right and you had a bit of a creative streak as well what kind of stuff were you into as a kid? Um, I played a lot of music I studied the piano and the saxophone and I also really loved writing and and I just loved a lot of documentary style television shows as well. I was obsessed with this show on SBS called Front Up where they would walk around Australia and talk to ordinary people on the street and find out more about who they were and their story. So I was always mm. sort of playing something or writing something and 
yeah, I kind of, I kind of think when you love politics, people assume you're going to go into law or politics itself. But I always wanted that balance with the creativity and the socially minded sort of outlook. Mm. Well, you did go on to study a communications degree at UTS in Sydney, where you live. I did that course too, actually. Excellent course. Um, And well, one of the great things about it, um, I thought, is that it does set you up for a whole range of roles in the media and comms space. So where did you see your career heading at that point? Um, When I first was at university, I studied um, a stream called Social Inquiry, which um, covered a lot of politics and history and those kinds of things as well as communications so I was pretty set that I was going to live out my West Wing fantasy and move (laughs) to Canberra and become a press secretary so I was already very drawn to this um yeah just this world of you know the heartbeat of the nation and you know what all the big decisions were made so straight after uni I did actually go to go to Canberra and become a graduate in the public service. Yeah, I saw you went down there pretty early on and I think you were down there for quite a few years. Um, So what was that experience like and, you know, was political comms what you thought it would be? Well, I started in the bureaucracy, which um, was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Um, (laughs) I had probably not as glamorous as Washington was portrayed to be on uh, television. But I think for me, the most valuable thing I got out of it was to kind of learn how a country works and learn more about the policy side because it can be a little bit of a mystery to most people and being someone who's passionate about comms and having to craft messages and understand how ministers think, it was really eye-opening in, in, in understanding all the process and what needs to happen. And I was very lucky to do a year at Parliament House, so that was probably my highlight of my Canberra experience Right. Walking the halls of power. And what did a typical work day look like for you back then or was there such a thing? I was a departmental liaison officer, so I was still part of the public service, but you're kind of like a representative of the department in the minister's office. And I was really lucky to work um, in the office of then Minister Penny Wong, who was heading up climate change and water policy. And so every day was a bit of a I found it really exciting, a bit of an adrenaline rush, particularly on sitting days. We would come in early for media briefings, um, liaise with the department on what was needed in the office, pull together question time briefs and folders, and then fall in a heap at about two o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Um, But I just really enjoyed that. We just got across so many issues every day and also being inside and having the opportunity to observe someone as amazing as as Penny and um, her staff was Mm. like a learning experience in itself. Well, yeah, I imagine those roles must have been quite high pressured. I mean, I noticed you were working in portfolios like immigration, sustainability and mental health. Are there any particular moments that have stuck with you from that time? Certainly, uh, when I was working at immigration, I recall working on a particular campaign um, in a public relations role and, you know, having to having to manage very many different stakeholders, including ministers and Um, departmental secretaries and I recall one night I think sitting on the departmental floor at one o'clock in the morning packing packing like bags or something for the next day's launch and I just (laughs) I know um yeah I just thought to myself this is such a diverse role one one minute we're up in the minister's office and the next minute we're on the floor at one o'clock in the morning getting our (laughs) hands dirty so I think that was probably um one that I'll never forget. 
And I think it was after about seven years of working in the government sector, you took the leap to freelance life and you're working with media organisations like NITV and the Koori Mail. So what prompted that move and and how big was the decision to leave the security of full-time work? Um, Yeah, I think it took me a long time to actually um, decide to leave. I think after a long time in the government sector, I really missed that creative part of myself that I felt like maybe I couldn't explore as much there. So I started freelancing a little bit on the side and just writing blogs here or there or writing speeches for people on occasion. Um, And that sort of led to more opportunities. So I sort of took the long road out. I um, went part-time and then eventually after about six to 12 months, I went full-time freelance. But it was Mm -hmm. certainly tough to leave a comfortable full-time job with great conditions and you know, pretty good wage and whatnot to to try this other creative thing. Yeah. And, I mean, did you find you were getting enough work straight away or were you having to deal with a bit of rejection at the start? Yeah, certainly I probably underestimated how much hustle there was. <laughs> you, <Right. laughs> um, you know, the, what it's like when you freelance, things are either on or off. So I think in the beginning I was really lucky that um, I was able to get a lot of work and picked up some some ongoing contracts with places like NITV. But then um, as they peter out, you really have to dig in and and fight hard for it, I guess. And if anyone who's run a small business or freelance also knows that sometimes it's not about getting the work, it's about getting paid. So it can become a part-time yes. job, chasing <laughs> invoices and things. So that was also going from uh, being a graduate at the age of 21 and never knowing anything other than a stable paycheck to going, hang on, why why wouldn't they pay me on the day they said <laughs> was, uh, was a bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> yes, the less glamorous side of working for yourself. Um, and what kind of work were you doing? Was it mainly journalism type work? Yeah, I did a lot of journalism work. I worked on a television show on NITV called Around the Traps, which was an Indigenous arts show. And I was a journalist at the Koree Mail and I did a bit of speech writing for the NRL. But I was also really lucky to pick up a little bit of comms consulting work as well. So I did a little bit of work supporting the Indigenous Digital Excellence Movement that is uh, part of the NCIE in Sydney and um, doing strategies and things like that. So that kind of was really exciting to me as well because that sort of set me up for my interest in consulting. Mm. And, I mean, did you miss working in the halls of power in Canberra or were you happy being in that more creative space? I think initially I was really happy to be out of that world for a while because although I learnt so much, it can be a little bit stifling for creative types, I guess. And, you know, it, need, it needs to be. It's very driven by policy and, you know, risk management and those kinds of things, which can be hard. So I think when I first left, I was just so excited um, to have this new life and do all of these things. But after a while, I kind of missed the, you know, being able to talk to people about what was going on in the Senate or <laughs> other things which not everyone loves to do. So I kind of yes. missed that little community of um I guess a nerdish kind of community where we debrief on late line every morning. (laughs) Yeah. And I suppose when you're freelancing too, I mean, it can be quite isolating in some ways. I guess it depends on the kind of assignments you're doing. But if you've always been in an office, yeah, getting that balance of having enough people time and, and conversation time can be tricky. Totally. But I guess since then, you've pretty cleverly found a way to combine your creative and your 
social or political interests with the work you're doing now at Cox in all Ridgeway. And, you know, I was surprised to hear that there is a specialist Indigenous PR consultancy like them. So can you tell us a bit about how you came to be working for them and what kind of work you do now? Oh, sure. Yeah, it was, um, I kind of fell into the, into the company. I'm very happy I did. Um, my husband's actually a videographer and photographer and was doing some freelance work for Ridgeway. Um, and then found out that they needed some additional support with the, on the comm side. So I started freelancing for them and I'd known a few of their staff from the community circles and um, the media and things like that. So it was, uh, I started doing consulting on different communications projects and writing copy and content and then eventually moved in. <laughs> um, we call ourselves a social change agency because that's kind of what we're about and we traverse communications and PR and other consulting on things like reconciliation action plans. But we also have a big focus on research and evaluation. So supporting government and other sectors to um, make sure that the programs and policies that they're implementing are having meaningful change. Mm. Well, I believe it's mostly non-Indigenous clients that you work with. So why would a, a government agency or a corporate client like Country Road, for example, seek to engage an agency like Ridgeway? I think um, Indigenous communications is a really unique space and I think when you're doing large-scale campaigns, for instance, and you need to get messages through to all Australians, that means that you do have to consider the different preferences and aspirations and um, contexts in which our communities live. So that's something that we really pride ourselves on knowing and having great connections with community and understanding um, the nuances and the differences in that space. So we help organisations deliver campaigns or tailor campaigns to make sure that our communities are supported and have access to the same opportunities as everyone else. And I guess we also really like to think that we're creative and Indigenous mm -hmm. peoples are the original storytellers. So we love being creative and working with big organisations like Country Road and, and others to come up with inspiring and exciting ideas that um, celebrate Indigenous stories as part of our collective history and our collective story and so mm. I think there's a bit of a you know sometimes we can we do work in the political space and on very serious issues and really important issues but I think it's also important to remember that Indigenous peoples are incredibly creative and um, yeah I think that's that's something that we love to explore more. Mm. And can you give us an idea of um you know, one of your favourite projects you've worked on or a moment at Ridgeway that's been particularly meaningful for you? Yeah, I think one of the biggest projects I was actually one of the first projects I worked on at Ridgeway, which was supporting the work of the Referendum Council. And that, that work has led to now the, you know, the Uluru Statement from the Heart or has, you know, been part of that process. Um, and that, that project for me was particularly exciting because it was national and it was also one of the first times that the government was using social media as a key tool to benchmark sentiment and engage with Australians. And mm -hmm. um, surprisingly for most people, Indigenous peoples use social media at higher rates than anyone else in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that, you know, doesn't change that much by age or remoteness. So it was kind of exciting to, you know, be be designing this really modern and contemporary approach um, and connecting with communities all over the country um, to hear their voices. Mm. And that was, 
you know, and for me that sort of was exciting because it fed back into my interest about nation changing and, you know, big <laughs> Canberra life stuff. So I was kind of thinking, wow, this is, that was the moment when I thought, yeah, this it's awesome that there are jobs like this that allow allow us to create social change by using creativity. And if you weren't busy enough with your full-time job, <laughs> you've really become known over the last couple of years for your side project that you launched, which is the Australian Indigenous Fashion Account on Instagram and Facebook. And that's gone on to become massive. It's a go-to for the fashion industry. I think it's got about 40,000 followers on Instagram now and about 20,000 on Facebook. So for people who aren't familiar with Oz Indigenous Fashion, can you tell us a bit about it and why you started that? Sure. Um, well, Oz Indigenous Fashion is my yeah my little pet project that I started about two years ago, and it's really a curated account to showcase the diversity of what's going on in the Indigenous fashion community. So I share a lot of images of design, the work of different designers, Indigenous designers, models, um, artists. I share a lot of landscape photography um, to really celebrate what's going on in the sector because it is a thriving and emerging sector and to remind us that it's also connected to very closely to our landscape and to our visual arts and to those stories and Mm. I kind of started it it sounds terrible but I started it out of frustration really because I was working um, at NITV and in the art space and through that I was really really lucky to be exposed to what was going on in the Indigenous fashion community and I remember traveling to Cairns with the film crew and getting to meet um, an Indigenous designer, Eva Wanganine, and I was absolutely blown away by her work and I started researching and learning about other Indigenous designers. And people would always say to me, oh, is that even a sector? Was that even a thing? Or what does Aboriginal fashion mean? And to be honest, I got so frustrated that, you know, it wasn't visible in Australia, it wasn't out there, it wasn't celebrated, that I thought I would put it on a page. So I thought I'm going to use Instagram and just put all of these beautiful photos on a page. So if anyone asks me what it looks like, I can show them. Well, yeah, I guess people can have quite a stereotyped or perhaps singular view of what Aboriginal design looks like. How would you describe what Australia is producing in terms of Indigenous fashion? I think it's incredibly diverse and incredibly cutting edge. And I think when you think about the diversity of our communities, I think you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of different communities and languages and stories and belief systems and landscapes. And when um, you think of Aboriginal art, people often think of very stereotypical dot paintings and things like that. And that, you know, is a beautiful part of our story. But I think the fashion um, world and what we're seeing across that also shows the diversity of the styles. We're seeing beautiful different colour schemes, different feathering techniques, different shells being used from coastal areas. And I think it's a beautiful way to actually engage and learn about um, the diversity within our Indigenous communities. And Mm. I think some of the uh, fashion that we see, particularly from our remote communities, really challenges people's perceptions of what remote art centres and remote communities are doing. Some of the work is absolutely stunning. Some of it has appeared on catwalks around the world. And I think that I think that's a really cool part of it as well, that mm. um, this thread of storytelling that is so ancient is being celebrated and imagined in a contemporary world. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned the catwalks. I know that you don't just showcase Indigenous fashion on the account but Indigenous models as well. Do you think we're starting to see better representation in the fashion industry? Yeah, I think, I mean, so I think certainly we have probably still a, a, a pretty long way to go but I've been really um, inspired by you know, seeing the support and the visibility and opportunities that have come through for a lot of our First Nations models. And there was um, quite a big moment for me last year where I got to interview Billie Jean Hamlet, who is a, an Indigenous model from originally from Fitzroy Crossing. She now lives in Sydney, but she was one of the breakout stars of Country Roads Horizons campaign and has become quite a regular on their social and in their um, stores I've noticed on their billboards and things like that and um, yeah that was really exciting to see a major Australian brand um, mm. supporting an emerging Indigenous model and she's and she's incredible and I think you know that was just a moment that I remember I thought yeah think, things are changing. And I know you've talked about fashion as being a good gateway for people to connect with Aboriginal identity and culture so what, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I think, um, I mean, there's some really hard truths that we need to confront in Australia about our history and there's, you know, a lot a lot that we all need to learn, even as Aboriginal people, to learn about um, who we are and what's happened and the impacts of some, you know, horrific um, past and current policies. And I think for me, you know, I tend to, from my political background, want to tell everyone all the facts and stats and get through to everyone and say, look, this is the argument, this is what we're doing and this is why you should support the voice. But I think part of my own learning in comms as well is that there are different ways to connect with people and have people understand. And for me, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have a really proud tradition of teaching and learning through story. So for me, there's a nice synergy there that having people look at a beautiful piece of fashion even, you know, purchasing a T-shirt can help them to understand where does that come from, what does that represent, what story are, you know, we telling you, who created it. So I think it's also a really nice and gentle and fun way to learn about Indigenous peoples and culture and history. And I think, yeah, we need to to do that. And I also think it's a nice way for us all to, to, to walk together in better celebrating Indigenous history and story as part of the Australian narrative and I don't know that we're there yet but I think these sorts of things inspire and excite people to think more about that. Yeah well yeah I saw the takeover that you did of the Country Road Instagram account in the last couple of weeks. How did that come about and and why is that kind of initiative important? Um, Yeah that was amazing to do actually. Um, Country Road has had worked with Cox and Ridgeway previously, so we had developed their worked with them on some Indigenous engagement guidelines, which was which was a great project and you know really really important step for that organisation to take. And so we reconnected after Reconciliation Week and talked about continuing the discussion and continuing the learning, and how important it was for um, organisations to make space for Indigenous voices. So again, that that issue of learning and teaching through fashion came up in that initial conversation with them, and we thought, what a beautiful way to continue um, continue this learning post reconciliation week by actually giving designers the space to tell us what they want us to hear, because that's for me the the real power of Indigenous fashion that it's not 
it's never just about the aesthetic. There's always a reason, there's always a story and there's always an anchor to something. And I think that's also one of the most exciting things um, about our fashion industry for broader Australia. That makes it meaningful. Mm. It makes it fun. So, yeah, we decided to give designers the opportunity to tell that story and connect Mm. that to their work. And can you share one of the stories that you posted on the account that week? Sure. I mean, I think um, Grace Lillian Lee has been, you know, I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. She's an Indigenous uh, artist, designer, curator. She does everything. Um, And in her work, she actually works a lot with remote communities to create stunning couture and beautiful fashion designs and all sorts of things. And she speaks a lot about how that connects to healing that we create fashion and design and story not just for others. We also create it as a pathway for healing and it has a really important role in supporting social and emotional well-being. So we shared a little bit um, about that and about her story and about how I first connected with Grace. I, it was the first um, Indigenous label that I actually bought a piece from when in my very early right. 20s. So I have a personal connection. I know Grace. Um, so, yeah, we, we shared a little bit of the story of how that supports healing and then we um, shared links to the Healing Foundation who do some great mm. work in Australia. So it was all kind of, you know, get people excited by the fashion, talk about what it means and then um, take them somewhere that they could learn more about that particular issue. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And, I mean, are these labels mostly being sold online? Are we finding them in you know the mainstream department stores now not not as much as we'd like to see I think a lot of um our indigenous labels are I mean again it's a very diverse community so a lot of them are online some of them are um, commission or order only and some of them are sold through art centers and other places and we're seeing a lot more of our indigenous artists and designers in the market scene as well so when you have like the big finders keepers markets and things like that um, we're seeing a lot of um, indigenous designers be a part of those events and we have black markets here in Sydney as well I think we'd really love to see some more designers in our in our major stores and the big collaboration that that Munkaja Arts did with Gorman last year that was really amazing to be able to walk down the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and see Aboriginal art in fashion in a really visible way. But I think, um, yeah, I'd really love to see our sector grow and increase support from big retailers and big fashion weeks. Mm. And, I mean, I noticed that you've been to well, at least one of the fashion weeks now. What have been some of your proudest moments or achievements that you've had since launching Oz Indigenous Fashion? I mean, to be honest, I was comp- quite blown away by the support of Oz Indigenous Fashion to start something just as a way for me to show people <laughs> what it mm-hmm. looked like um, to now being part of this amazing community. I think my fa- my proudest moment was really being a part of the Virgin Australian Melbourne Fashion Festival, which happened just before COVID. So I think the week before. And so I think in my, I, something that I never would have imagined when I started the account that I would suddenly have an event at at a fashion festival like that and we held a storytelling session again to sort of draw those links um, between fashion and story and we worked with some amazing Aboriginal female storytellers from Victoria um, who came and shared the story of their favourite fashion piece as part of the VAMP program. So for Mm -hmm. me to kind of start this in my, you know, 
on the ferry on the way to work because <laughs> um, I didn't want to answer questions about the about what Aboriginal fashion was to suddenly being at Fashion Week was like incredible for me. Yeah. And I guess with everything going on right now with Black Lives Matter and the anti-racism movement, I mean, one of the positive things I've noticed is that you know, people are really sharing links to Indigenous voices and resources and creative mm. platforms like yours. And hopefully that's something people will continue to engage with going forward. But have you noticed a big jump in followers over these past few weeks and what does that say to you? Yeah, I certainly have um, noticed some jump in followers, but also an increase in conversation. So a lot of um, brands or or businesses are reaching out to have really frank and open conversations about Black Lives Matter and I think it's been really positive that a lot of businesses and organisations are taking time to reflect on their own practice and their own responsibilities and what they want to do moving forward. But certainly I have seen, you know, even the, you know, big media outlets like Mamma Mia and places like that. Uh, I've seen just saw Jamila Rizvi from Future Women last night sharing links to um, books written by First Nations authors and um, designers and businesses. So I think it's certainly um, it's certainly encouraged us to to think about what it means in an Australian context and what we could all be doing and how we can all continue to learn together. Well, yeah, and I think it's so great for people to see just the scope of Indigenous platforms out there even on just even on a platform like Instagram you know I've saw recently an interview with one of the founders of the Blackfella book club and you know whatever your creative interests are there's a pretty amazing (laughs) Indigenous uh, community out there that's um, (laughs) sharing all of this stuff and I think for a lot of people they're only just getting to see it for the first time but it's been there for a while now. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, people don't realise as, you know, we have drinks companies, superfood businesses, skincare brands, fashion labels, um, you know, the list goes on all the way up to, you know, Indigenous run construction companies and um, IT and digital organisations. So I think, yeah, the diversity and the diversity is really an important message I want to get out there as well about whether it's about fashion or business that yeah we're doing we're doing so much in the space and you just have to um, open your eyes and you'll find us and I had an interview that you did with Marley Silva who our listeners might know as the young woman behind Titters for Titters which is another massively successful Instagram community or and podcast um, and she mentioned that you were actually her boss when she was working at Cox and All Ridgeway and how that had such an impact on her because it was the first time in her career that she'd had a manager who was an Indigenous woman. And she also said it was seeing your success with Oz Indigenous Fashion that inspired her to launch Titters for Titters. So I wondered how it feels to know that you're having such a positive influence on the next generation of Indigenous women. Oh, she was very kind in saying that. I mean, she and I were both sort of starting our Instagram at the same, around the same time. Um, And I'm a little bit older than Marley, so she was also my digital guide on many occasions (laughs) as well. I'd be like, Marley, how do you tag this person? (laughs) How do I do a live? (laughs) I think it definitely worked both ways. We um, supported each other very much during that, and I think we inspired each other. Um, But, yeah, that was really lovely. it was really lovely of her her to say that, and I think when you know we talk about me being her boss or or whatnot, I think also from an Aboriginal perspective, we take a worldview that's not as hierarchical, and we tend to work much more collaboratively and cohesively. So I think um, 
I think for me as well, reflecting on her comments that being part of an Aboriginal business and having the opportunity to work with people like her and my my boss, for want of a better word, um, Aidan Ridgeway is like, you know, really inspiring. And I think that that's, that's also part of our cultural philosophy that we hold each other up, we work together, we play to each other's strengths and we consider the needs of everyone um, mm. when we make decisions. And I think that's something I've really loved I'm really glad to hear that the you know people like Marley were inspired by that and contributed to that philosophy, but certainly um, at a broader level, working with other Indigenous people and an Indigenous agency just affirms for me how how beautiful and amazing that way of working is. Mm. You're now described as an Indigenous fashion advocate, which for someone who started out in politics must feel like quite the leap. <laughs> and what does that mean to you and what do you hope to achieve going forward? Yeah, it's totally um, it's totally different from what I imagined. I mean, if anyone knows me as a teenager, I was in Kmart matching shorts and T-shirt sets, so I was not probably was not ever destined to be in the fashion advocacy world. But I think <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, being an advocate is really um, about using my storytelling skills and interest to shine a light and keep the conversation going about what's going on in the community. And I just want to elevate the work and voices of Indigenous designers. And through my PR background, I guess, wherever I can engage with, you know, I'm, exci- I'm really excited to work with big organisations like Country Road and to bring an Indigenous lens and to bring Um, knowledge and experience and excitement from the Indigenous fashion community. So I kind of see myself, I'm not a designer by any means, um, but I do like to think of myself as like a, almost like a facilitator to both share stories and find opportunities to, to elevate the work of our amazing communities. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast, and you've certainly done that over the many chapters of your career and in starting a passion project that has taken off in such a positive way, what would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? There's probably, oh, I, if I can be very cheeky and have two. Uh, you may. <laughs> I think probably leaving the public service for the, you know, was pretty, um, you know, I went back and forth on that decision for a really long time and, you know, when you've started as a 21-year-old straight out of uni and, like, set up this career path for yourself in the public service, people think you're a little bit uh, curious for wanting to give it all away to, you know, work in Indigenous comms and fashion and all these other exciting things. So I think for me that was really hard. That was, I don't want to use the word brave about myself, but um, certainly a tough decision and something that probably I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself for doing in my 20s. And then I think the second big thing for me was actually making the decision to go back into full-time work. Um, Took a lot of, you know, a lot of going back and forth again and going over what it meant for me. Like, had I failed? Had I not been successful at freelancing? Was I not cut out for it? Was I going to get bored? Was I going to feel stifled again? So I think when I had this opportunity to work full-time at Coxin or Ridgeway, um, I mulled over it for a little bit and I thought to myself, you know, what does this say about me? And I probably had a bit of a crisis of confidence at that time, but ultimately decided that it was a place that supported my creativity and my need for a bit of security as well. So I think, mm. yeah, that was probably another point where I was like, I've got to 
I've got to just take this jump now and see what happens. Yeah. Well, it seems like you've. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like you found the perfect balance. I mean, it can. You know, I think what I love about your story is that, you know, partly because my own interests as well, I suppose. But I love that you can have your serious issues and the social justice passion, but still be a creative person. Like I feel like, I don't know if you feel like this way, but when I was growing up, it almost felt like you had to choose and. You know, I started in women's magazines and sometimes I could feel embarrassed about that if I was in, you know, having a serious conversation with someone about politics, for example. But it's okay to be all of the things. You totally can be. And I I definitely remember being in Canberra and, you know, really getting excited about Late Line, Dateline, you know, (laughs) with different pieces of legislation in the Senate and then a few times probably getting a few weird looks coming into work at, you know, Prime Minister and Cabinet going, oh, who saw The Bachelor last night? Yeah. And they were going, what are you talking about? It's like, I'm allowed to watch The Bachelor. I also watch Late Line. It's fine. Yep. <laughs> I'm allowed to love I, it all. <laughs> yes, I wholeheartedly agree. Yes. Um, <laughs> and we talked about you being an inspiring woman to Marley, but who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? I think, like, in terms of modern day Indigenous leaders, I'm really inspired by the work of Megan Davis. Um, she's an Indigenous, proud Indigenous woman, a constitutional lawyer, and really led the process that resulted in the Uluru Statement from the heart. And I just think for someone who has, you know, worked in the United Nations and is, is so well respected and understood to 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 be able to go out grassroots in community and drive this and achieve consensus and someone who is not giving up, who is continuing to fight for this, I think she's someone that I kind of look to now and think, wow, that's, you know, that's that's inspirational um, for me. So she's definitely, definitely someone that I look to at the moment. And I mm. think, um, yeah, in my career in the public service, although I found it challenging at times and a bit a bit stifling, there are some amazing women that I worked, worked for, including the Honourable Penny Wong, who was an amazing leader and amazing to watch someone like that and also Robin Cruck um, who was the head of the National Mental Health Commission um, where I worked for some time and I'd worked with her previously in Canberra and she's just she was just like I don't know how to describe her other than a non-bureaucrat bureaucrat just like (laughs) able to work in the system so well but so sensible and practical and logical and I just yeah really appreciated watching these kind of frank and fearless women and I, I, I learned so much from that time. So, I, yeah, certainly certainly value my time in, in that sector and was very lucky to, mm. to meet people like Penny and Robin. And if there's someone listening out there who might be wanting to make a brave leap in their career, whether it's switching career paths or going freelance or maybe starting up a side project, do you have any final tips for them? I'd say just do it. <laughs> But I mean, I, the sort of thing that I did that gave me comfort in doing it was not was sitting down and actually thinking about what's the worst thing that could happen. And the worst thing that could happen for me at that time was if it didn't work out, I could go and see a recruiter and get another job in the public service, or I could move back to Canberra or, you know, all sorts of things. So I think thinking through what it is that you would do in a scenario if things didn't work out makes you feel like, you know what, it's not going to be that bad, you know. It's not. Yeah. So I think reminding yourself that you have opportunity and even as a backup, I actually I actually engage some recruiters when I freelanced as well as a bit of yeah, a backup right. to make sure that, you know, I felt connected. I had someone I could talk to. I could keep an eye on what was going on if I started to feel nervous about what was happening in my freelance life. And that 
just mm. knowing that there are those safety nets around you can be really helpful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Yatu. It's been lovely speaking with you. Likewise. Thanks so much, Jackie. That was Yatu Widders Hunt, founder and curator of Australian Indigenous Fashion, which you can find on Instagram and Facebook at Oz Indigenous Fashion. And we'll include the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.